Welcome to the March 2nd, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss the findings from a Phase 3 trial of PI3K Delta inhibitor Leniolisib in activated PI3K Delta syndrome. Learn more about the efficacy and safety of dabrafenib plus trametinib in relapsed refractory BRAF V600E mutation-positive hairy cell leukemia, and review the findings from a study conducted in an international cohort of patients with T-gamma-delta LGL leukemia. We first examined data in the blood article entitled Randomized Placebo-Controlled Phase 3 Trial of PI3K Delta Inhibitor Leniolisib for Activated PI3K Delta Syndrome by V. Conetti Rao from the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, and colleagues. Activated phosphoinositide 3 kinase delta syndrome, or APDS, is an inborn error of immunity caused by pathogenic heterozygous variants in either of the genes encoding the PI3K delta heterodimer. There are two forms of APDS, APDS1 and APDS2. APDS1 is associated with gain-of-function variants in PIK3CD encoding the catalytic subunit P110-delta, while APDS2 is associated with loss-of-function variants in PIK3R1 encoding the regulatory subunit P85-alpha. Disruption of normal interaction between the two subunits caused by these pathogenic variants leads to hyperactive PI3K delta signaling and the immune dysregulation seen in APDS. APDS is a complex immune deficiency associated with an increase in immature or dysfunctional B and T lymphocytes and immunoglobulin dysfunction. Clinically, it is often characterized by recurrent sinopulmonary infections and prolonged or intermittent herpes virus viremia. Patients with APDS often have an inverted CD4-positive, CD8-positive T-cell ratio, which is primarily driven by an increase in terminal differentiation. The shift in T-cell subsets leads to an ineffective immune response, particularly to chronic infections such as cytomegalovirus and Epstein-Barr virus. Similarly, a disruption in B-cell subsets is also noted, with a decrease in mature naive B-cells and memory B-cells immunoglobulin deficiencies, and poor antibody responses to infection. Lymphoproliferation can result in lymphadenopathy, splenomegaly, hepatomegaly, and nodular lymphoid hyperplasia of the airways and gut. Other manifestations of APDS include autoimmunity, enteropathy, and risk of lymphoma. Presently, the management of APDS remains empirical. Treatment consists of immunomodulatory therapies, prophylactic antimicrobials, immunoglobulin replacement therapy, splenectomy, and hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. However, most available therapies do not target hyperactive PI3K delta signaling. Leniolisib is an orally bioavailable small molecule inhibitor engineered to selectively target PI3K delta signaling. In a recent dose-finding study conducted in six patients with APDS, the authors reported that leniolisib was well-tolerated and effective in reducing PI3K delta pathway hyperactivity and decreasing lymphoproliferation. The current study reports on the outcomes from a phase 3 trial of fixed-dose leniolisib in a small cohort of patients with APDS.
The randomized, triple-blinded, placebo-controlled study included 31 patients, aged 12 to 54 years, from the United States, Europe, and Russia. Study subjects had pathogenic variants in PIK3CD, or PIK3R1, presentation consistent with APDS, and one or more measurable lymph nodes on CT or MRI. Patients were randomized 2 to 1 to receive 70 mg leniolisib or placebo orally every 12 hours for 12 weeks. Efficacy and safety assessments were performed on days 15, 29, 57, and 85, with pharmacokinetic assessments on days 29, 57, and 85. The study had two co-primary endpoints, including differences from baseline in lymph node size and percentage of naive B cells in peripheral blood, which were considered proxies for immune dysregulation and deficiency. For the first endpoint, the change from baseline at day 85 in the log 10 transformed sum of product diameters of index lymph nodes was assessed. The second primary endpoint was a positive change from baseline at day 85 in the percentage of naive B cells out of the total B cells determined by flow cytometry. Secondary and exploratory endpoints included B and T cell subset immunophenotyping, levels of serum immunoglobulins, cytokines, chemokines, and inflammatory markers, and the change in spleen and liver size. Study findings revealed that both co-primary endpoints were met. A significant reduction in lymph adenopathy was seen, with a difference in the adjusted mean change between leniolisib and placebo for lymph node size of minus 0.25. In addition, leniolisib significantly increased the percentage of naive B cells in peripheral blood at day 85 from baseline with the difference in the adjusted mean change of 37.3, favoring leniolisib. Furthermore, treatment with leniolisib reduced spleen volume compared to placebo and also improved key immune cell subsets and cytopenias. There were no statistically significant changes in patient and clinician-reported outcomes. However, investigators described positive improvements including increased tolerance for physical activity and decreased fatigue in 70% of patients receiving leniolisib, compared to 44.4% of patients receiving placebo. Most treatment-related adverse events were grade 1 or 2, and the incidence was lower in the leniolisib arm compared to the placebo, 23.8% versus 30%. During the study, five patients reported serious adverse events, but none were felt to be related to the study medication and there were no deaths. The authors concluded that treatment with oral leniolisib over 12 weeks offered targeted therapy of an immune dysregulation disorder as measured by a significant reduction in lymphadenopathy and an increase in naive B-cell percentages compared with placebo while being well-tolerated overall. In an accompanying commentary, Haley Newman and David Tichy from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania commend Kennedy Rao and collaborators for performing a worldwide Phase three study in a rare disorder. They concur that the authors have demonstrated the safety of leniolisib for the treatment of APDS. However, they note that the primary endpoints of reduced lymph adenopathy and improved naive B-cell count may not represent clinically meaningful results. Newman and Tichy suggest that the 12-week follow-up period is not long enough to measure the clinical impact in this chronic disease with infectious and autoimmune complications. Patients enrolled on this trial have the option of continuing therapy through an open-label extension trial that will examine the safety and efficacy of long-term treatment with leniolisib. 
results from this longer-term experience may further support the use of leniolisib as a paradigm-shifting targeted medicine for APDS. Finally, Newman and Tichi conclude that this study sets a strong example for other rare diseases, where efforts should be made to evaluate precision therapies in randomized Phase three trials. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled Dabrafenib plus Trametinib in patients with relapsed refractory BRAF V600E mutation positive hairy cell leukemia by Robert Kreitman, National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. Hairy cell leukemia, or HCL, is a rare form of B-cell lymphoproliferative disease associated with pancytopenia and splenomegaly. Purine analogs, including cladribine or pentostatin, are the recommended first-line treatment for HCL. Treatment with purine analogs typically yields complete response rates between 76% and 91%, and treatment-free intervals exceeding 10 years. Purine analogs in combination with the anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody rituximab result in a complete response without detectable minimal residual disease, or MRD, in approximately 92 to 97% of patients. However, treating patients with HCL who progress after first-line therapy remains a challenge. The anti-CD22 immunotoxin, moxitumumab pasudotox, was approved for patients with relapsed refractory HCL who failed at least two prior lines of therapy, including at least one purine analog. The approval was based on an objective response rate, or ORR, of 75%, and a durable complete response rate of 30%. The Brutans tyrosine kinase inhibitor, ibrutinib, has also shown efficacy in relapsed refractory HCL, with a demonstrated ORR of 54% and a 36-month progression-free survival rate of 73% with continuous treatment. Oncogenic mutations in BRAF, primarily the V600E mutation, are found in 90-100% to of patients with HCL. BRAF mutations activate downstream MAPK signaling, promoting cell survival. BRAF V600E is believed to be directly associated with key molecular features of HCL. Several BRAF kinase inhibitors have proven effective in patients with HCL, including vemurafenib and dabrafenib, although response durations were limited. The addition of rituximab to vemurafenib resulted in more durable responses in HCL. Combining BRAF inhibition with inhibition of downstream MAC has led to improved clinical outcomes in solid tumor studies, but data in HCL is lacking. The current study reports on the findings from an open-label, non-randomized Phase II trial of dabrafenib plus the MEK inhibitor trametinib in BRAF V600E mutation-positive rare cancers. The trial recruited patients in nine different cohorts based on cancer type, and herein the authors present the findings for the HCL cohort. Patients were eligible if they were refractory to first-line therapy with a purine analog or had received at least two prior lines of therapy. Study subjects were treated with oral dobrafenib, 150 mg twice daily, and oral trametinib, 2 mg once daily, until unacceptable toxicity, disease progression, or death. Disease assessments were performed every four weeks for the first 48 weeks and every eight weeks thereafter until disease progression. Patients were assessed for complete responses using bone marrow biopsy and CT 
MRD was assessed using immunohistochemistry and or multi-parameter flow cytometry in peripheral blood and bone marrow. Investigator-assessed ORR served as the primary endpoint. Secondary endpoints included duration of response, progression-free survival, overall survival, and safety. The study enrolled 55 patients with BRAF V600E mutation-positive HCL. All patients had relapsed or progressed after treatment with purine analogs, either pentostatin or cladribine. Most patients had received at least two prior lines of therapy. The investigator-assessed ORR was 89.1%, 65.5% of patients had a complete response, and 23.6% had a partial response. The MRD negativity rate, per protocol definition of negative immunohistochemistry of bone marrow biopsy, was 9.1%. With a median follow-up of 43.2 months, the median duration of response was not reached. The 24-month duration of response rate was 97.7%, and the 24-month progression-free survival and overall survival were 94.4% and 94.5% respectively. Pyrexia, chills, and hyperglycemia were the most common treatment-related adverse events, occurring at rates of 58.2%, 47.3%, and 40%, respectively. The authors concluded that dabrafenib in combination with trametinib demonstrated durable responses with an acceptable safety profile, and that this combination should be considered as a new therapeutic option for patients with relapsed refractory BRAF V600E mutation-positive HCL. In an accompanying commentary, Michael Griever, from The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, notes that the study by Kreitman and colleagues adds the dabrafenib plus trametinib combination to the list of effective therapies in patients with relapsed refractory HCL. He notes that this finding is especially relevant for patients who may be at an increased risk of infection. In studies to date, cladribine has been shown to increase the risk of complications in patients with uncontrolled infection. Moreover, the combination of a purine analog and the anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody rituximab is believed to significantly suppress the immune system for months, increasing the risk to patients who may be infected with COVID-19. The use of a combination of a BRAF V600E inhibitor and a MEK inhibitor is also of interest with respect to the duration of response. Although vemurafenib alone is effective in inducing remission in relapsed HCL, the duration of response of this agent is limited. Furthermore, as noted earlier, the combination of vemurafenib and rituximab carries the risk of prolonged immunosuppression. For the final article in today's podcast, we will review a report published in Blood entitled T-gamma-delta LGL leukemia identifies a subset with more symptomatic disease, analysis of an international cohort of 137 patients, by Gregorio Baria from the Veneto Institute of Molecular Medicine in Padua, Italy, and colleagues. Large granular lymphocyte leukemia, or LGLL, is a rare chronic lymphoproliferative disorder characterized by the clonal expansion of large granular lymphocytes, or LGLs. Lymphoproliferation affecting the bronchi, lymphadenopathy, splenomegaly, hepatomegaly, and intestinal lymphoid hyperplasia is common. Although the exact pathogenesis of LGLL is unknown, it has been established that JAKSTAT pathway activation is involved in LGL proliferation. 
approximately 40% of LGLL cases have somatic STAT3 and STAT5B mutations. Based on surface T-cell receptor expression, T-alpha-beta-LGLL and T-gamma-delta-LGLL subsets have been identified. LGLL occurs at a rate of 0.2 to 0.72 cases per 1 million individuals per year. However, the frequency of the less common T-gamma-delta-LGLL has not been well-defined. Few cases of T-gamma-delta-LGLL have been included in previous retrospective studies. Thus, the clinical features, outcomes, and frequencies of STAT3 and STAT5B mutations in this entity are not well-defined. The current study represents the largest cohort of T-gamma-delta-LGLL compiled to date. The study aimed to characterize the clinical and biological features of T-gamma-delta-LGLL and to compare clinical outcomes to the more common T-alpha-beta-LGLL subset. The authors retrospectively collected data on 137 patients with T-gamma-delta-LGLL, followed from 1997 to 2020, at eight referral centers across the world, including in France, Italy, Japan, Spain, and the United States. T-LGL clonality was assessed by TCR-gamma gene rearrangement, and screening for STAT3 and STAT5B mutations was performed by Sanger sequencing or next-generation sequencing, according to local practice. Along with demographic and clinical features, the study evaluated response to treatment based on clinical and laboratory examinations after at least four to six months of therapy using the current response criteria for LGLL. The findings from this cohort were then compared with a previously reported cohort of T-alpha-beta-LGLL of similar size. The analysis revealed that neutropenia and anemia were the most relevant clinical features, present in 54.2% and 49.6% of patients, respectively. Severe neutropenia and anemia were found in approximately 20% of cases each. Cyclosporin A provided the best response rates, with methotrexate being less effective. Mutational analysis found that 38.1% of analyzed patients harbored the STAT3 mutation, while 4.2% harbored the STAT5B mutation. A comparison of these findings to those reported for the T-alpha-beta-LGLL cohort found no difference in the frequency of STAT3 and STAT5B mutations. However, patients with T-gamma-delta-LGLL more frequently presented with neutropenia, anemia, severe anemia, and thrombocytopenia. Interestingly, Patients with T-gamma-delta-LGLL who were negative for the V-delta-2 receptor had a higher frequency of symptomatic disease. Overall, patients with T-gamma-delta-LGLL displayed reduced survival compared to patients with T-alpha-beta-LGLL. The authors concluded that compared to T-alpha-beta-LGLL, patients with T-gamma-delta-LGLL have unique biological and clinical characteristics and represent a subset of patients with more symptomatic disease and poorer outcomes who may benefit from individualized therapy. In an accompanying commentary, Natalie Flug from the University of Cologne in Cologne, Germany, notes that the findings reported by Baria and collaborators contradict the paradigm that both T-alpha-beta-LGLL and T-gamma-delta-LGLL are chronic conditions with a similar and indolent course of the disease. Namely, T-gamma-delta-LGLL cases were more frequently symptomatic 
with reduced overall survival compared to T alpha beta LGLL. Moreover, the authors demonstrated that T gamma delta LGLL is not a homogeneous entity, since positivity for the V delta 2 receptor chain was associated with a more indolent form of the disease. The study by Baria further suggests that treatment selection needs to be based on the subtype of LGLL. Until now, low-dose methotrexate, or cyclophosphamide, have been used as first-line therapy independent of the LGLL variant, while cyclosporin A was used in the second and third-line settings. These latest findings suggest that patients with the T-gamma-delta variant do not seem to respond well to methotrexate, but do benefit from cyclosporin A. The better response to therapy translated into prolonged progression-free survival and overall survival. Finally, Flug notes that caution is warranted in interpreting the data presented by Baria and collaborators. Firstly, it is possible that T-gamma-delta-LGLL cases are more likely to be diagnosed at a later stage compared to T-alpha-beta-LGLL cases since T-gamma-delta-LGLL is associated with a lower median LGL cell count. Secondly, in treatment selection, undiagnosed pure red cell aplasia should be ruled out, since patients with this condition respond well to non-cytotoxic immunosuppression with cyclosporin. Flug emphasizes that future research should further address whether LGLL is one disease with a unifying pathophysiology or clinically and molecularly distinct entities. Ultimately, exploration of the LGLL landscape will pave the way for improved, targeted, and personalized therapies for this orphan disease. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.